morning. Good morning. Everybody sleep well? All you wimps who went home, slept in your own beds. Chris, sleep? Great, good. I'm so glad. Uh, we, we started uh, our time together with a, a peak, a first peak at Psalm 103, and there were some questions that, and comments really that were, were made last night that uh, I've been thinking about, thought about uh, kind of through the evening last night and, um, and again this morning. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I found myself thinking about, well, actually two things, Tommy's question last night um, and then Chris's, uh, Chris's question um, as, well, as well as some of the other their comments just wanted me to take a minute inclined me to take a minute this morning and just think for a few minutes uh, again about what we talked about last night um, as we looked at that first of the benefits that David rejoices in and celebrates. Um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquities. Um, I didn't, didn't use this word last night as we were looking at Leviticus 16 and the, the Day of Atonement. Um, but it's a it's a good word. I mean, there are just there are some words that we should have in our kind of working theological vocabularies. Um, I don't I don't uh, I'm not that smart. Okay, so I'm not trying to impress you with how smart I am because I'm not that smart. But I really believe this that there are certain words uh, that we should have in our working vocabulary. What we looked at last night. Um, as we ask the question, how is it possible for God to remove our sins, our iniquities, as far as the east is from the west? How, how does he do that? We looked at Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, and particularly that moment when the high priest places his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confesses the sins of the people. Um, in a figurative way that the sins of the people are transferred to the high priest, through the high priest, to the scapegoat who bears those sins out into the wilderness and they never return. They're gone, right? Well, the, 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 the theological word that we use to, to, to sort of describe or summarize um, that transfer is the word imputation. And it means to credit to someone's account. So what happens at the cross is that your sin is credited to the account of Jesus. It's, it's an accounting term. It comes from the accounting world. Uh, it, it becomes Jesus. It is Jesus's. It is credited to his account. And as he dies on the cross, he bears what we call the judicial wrath of God as a sin-bearing substitute for you. So past, present, future, the whole, the whole ball of wax, the whole enchilada, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole deal, all of it, right, becomes Jesus's, and it is no longer yours. And that, that word, along with some other words, becomes one of the foundation stones for our understanding of what we call justification, which is a declarative act of God in which, in which God because of the finished work of Christ, received by faith, declares 
the sinner who was formerly guilty to be not guilty. Not guilty of any charge that could be brought against him. So what that means is that when, when you come to your dying day, and I, this is important, it's, and it's becoming increasingly important. <laughs> it, it didn't seem quite as important when I was 51. It seems a lot more important at 71. When you come to your dying day, and you don't know when, when your dying day will be, when you, when you come to breathe your last breath, you can come to that day and you can come to that final breath knowing that a verdict has already been rendered in your case. And it's the verdict of not guilty. Innocent. Innocent of any charge that could be brought against you because every single one of those charges, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and following, every single one of those charges has been nailed to the cross. The penalty has been paid, right? John, in, in his first letter, tells us in the first chapter, if we confess our sins, this is, this is fascinating. If we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to do it because he's a God of faithfulness. He's a God of covenant faithfulness. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. When he provides a substitute, the substitute is sufficient. But it's interesting that John adds that word just. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. If Jesus has died for your sins, it would be an injustice on God's part to hold you accountable for those sins. Right? There's any attorneys in here? Right? There no attorneys. Well, no, right there. There is no double jeopardy, right? Double jeopardy is the thing that says you can't pay for the same crime twice. Well, Jesus paid for the crime. And because he did, you never have to. Right. And I said last night, that's where our peace comes from. That, that's why we can have peace of conscience. We. We haven't talked about a whole bunch of other things that we could talk about that have to do with our standing before God. But Steve read this, this wonderful verse from Psalm 149. Uh, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. What we haven't talked about and I'd love to talk about is the biblical doctrine of adoption. That, that you, you not only are justified, declared innocent, but you've, made a, you've been made a son of the God of heaven and earth. A child of your heavenly father. Right? I have three daughters. I will never forget, never forget the moment my first daughter was born. Dr. Leonard Eppard in, in Vienna County, Virginia delivered my first daughter, toweled her off, made sure she wasn't turning blue, and handed her to me. I, I looked into that face, and I'm not sure that I have known a pleasure quite like that since, even with children two and three, and with seven grandchildren, with two more on the way. The pleasure of holding my child, who bore our family likeness, was a joy 
unlike anything, just about anything I've experienced. Your heavenly Father has not only forgiven you and justified you, through his Son, Jesus Christ, he has made you to be his son. You are his beloved child. And he takes great pleasure in you. Right? So, so to Tommy's point last night, his question, I, I can understand how God can forgive others. How do I forgive myself when my conscience rises up to assault me? When, when you, you know, you do have an adversary. Paul or Peter tells us that you do have an enemy. You don't see him. But, but Peter tells us that he prowls around like a, a lion seeking someone to devour. There's a whole lot that could be said about the devil, which I'd love to talk about if somebody wants to ask about it later. But he's there and he's real. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that, that our warfare is not against, not against flesh and blood, right? but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places, these unseen forces. You have an enemy. You have two enemies. Your conscience can be an enemy, and the devil can be an enemy and is an enemy. Martin Luther understood this. Um, Martin Luther is notorious for uh, engaging the enemy. And And I tracked down this quote last night because this, I think, in answer to Tommy's question, is in part the answer. What, what do I do when my conscience rises up to accuse me, to condemn me, to tell me that I'm past being forgiven? I've done too much or what I've done is too bad for God to forgive. This is Luther. When the devil accuses, listen to this, brothers, because here, here's what my point is going to be. As Luther learned to do, you and I need to learn to speak to ourselves. I need to learn, as Luther would put it, I need to learn to preach the gospel to myself. As, as Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous Welsh preacher of the 20th century, would say, I need to learn to take myself in hand and talk to myself. Right? This is Luther. When the devil accuses you and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, I answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and be saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting before me the greatness of my sins and trying to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet, because Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. 
I mean, dudes, we should be dancing, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Every, every reminder, whether from your conscience or from the devil or from, or from somebody who doesn't like you, whatever the deal may be, every accusation actually becomes a weapon that you can use in your own defense because that accusation is the very thing for which Christ has died. Amen. And that, that accusation is a reminder to you of that fact. So, Tommy, that would be, you know, part, in, in addition to what we said last night, that's a thing I think that, that is, 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 is very helpful. Now, let me say this. There are times... I've experienced them. I'm reasonably certain that everybody in this room has experienced them. There are times when, when the sense of guilt and shame is so big and so overwhelming, I can't speak to myself. I, I don't have the strength to do it. So what do I do then? I go to Chris and I say, Chris, tell me what is true about me. Tell me what is true about me. I need you to preach the gospel to me and remind me what is true. Remind me, as Tommy and I were talking this morning, remind me that in that courtroom, the judge rendered a verdict and that verdict is the verdict not guilty. Remind me that I am a child of my heavenly father who takes great pleasure in me. When I can't do it for myself, I need you to do it for me. And when you can't do it for yourself, you need me to do it for you. We need each other in this thing. So, again, just um, thinking about what we talked about last night and some of the questions and comments that came. um, um, I, I happened to think of Luther and, and wanted to share that with you. And then uh, Chris's question, which is another question that, that haunts us, plagues us, that um, is just a, a real part of our experience. It, you know, it tends to be the same thing over and over again, right? I've said to my congregants, I'll say this to you, I'd love to get out of my own skin and get into your skin for a while just to see something different. You know what I mean? I mean, I get tired of being me. And it'd be fun to crawl into your skin just for a change of pace, you know. Um, so, but, so, so what do we do? Well, I, I mentioned Psalm 25 last night. Um, and, I, and I also kind of had David's comment. Where is David? He was here a minute ago. Oh, there he is. Hey. David, I don't know if the rest of you heard him say this, but when when we were talking about that that matter of, of besetting sin or you know committing the same sin, he he said pray. Um, and um, you know, in in addition to what I said last night, which was a reference to Psalm 25, verse 11, where where. David says, for the sake of your great name, O Lord, forgive my sin, for it is great, or forgive my guilt, for it is great. You know, you, you want to flee to someone like that, 
someone who is magnified and glorified and honored and who takes delight in forgiving sin and has a basis upon which to do it, which is the finished work of Jesus. Um, but then I, I thought about David's comment to pray, and I um, recently have been memorizing some of Psalm 57, um, which, which is um, another Psalm of David. Um, this one, we, we do kind of know what's going on with this one because he's on the run. He's being harassed. He's been hounded, being hounded by Saul. That's where this Psalm uh, gets placed in his life. And he says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will send from heaven and save me. I think it's words, words like that. It's, it's um, you know, the richness of the Psalms in, in one respect is that they, they articulate things that we struggle with and that we feel. They, they put into words our longings and our desires. And, and David in this Psalm, God in this Psalm through David gives us words for those moments of of real anguish when we, we feel like we're being destroyed, not by a Saul or by somebody else, but by our own hearts, being destroyed by our own residual remaining sin. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me, he will send from heaven and save me. Those, those prayers, those kinds of prayers, I think are um, helpful to us when we find ourselves confronted with ourselves again. Um, God is the place to go, and, and here are some words that are helpful to us. So I just, again, just wanted to take a few minutes to make um, some comments following up uh, last night. Um, So back to Psalm 103, um, these these benefits that um, David enumerates for us, the first one of which is is what we've been talking about, um, that he forgives all our iniquity. Um, this, This second one, verse 3, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who heals all your diseases. Who heals all your diseases. That's, that's what I'd like for us uh, to look at. But, um, but let me pray for us as we, as we get started with this, this uh, part of the psalm. Lord Jesus... Um, Thank you for, for each man in this room. Um, Lord Jesus, they, they're not here by chance because of the roll of the dice or anything else. They're here because you've appointed that, that each of them, each of us would be here. We, we are here because you have good purposes for us. You have plans for us. 
um, Jeremiah, as you through Jeremiah tell us, plans for a future and and for a hope. Um, and as we look at your word, I I pray that that word, that word hope, would begin to loom large for us. Um, that we would that we would see in this this little verse uh, something of a of a window into the great great purpose and plan that you have. Uh, for each of us and, and, and even for your world. Um, so, uh, again, Lord, we ask that you grant your spirit that you'd help us in these minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. Heals all our diseases. So what, what did David mean? Um, how, what does God mean since... You know, of course, behind David, who is the human author of this verse, there is there is uh, the other author, the Spirit of God, who inspires David. He is the the final, ultimate author of this of this verse, of this whole psalm, of everything in the Bible, which is why it can be trusted because it comes from the Spirit of God through human authors, but originating with Him. Um, we can trust everything that he has that he has made known to us. Um, what does God mean? What does He want for us to understand in this phrase? Heals all your diseases. I, I mean, I think we have a tendency to to um, to restrict our understanding of this to the present, to to kind of to the right now, to to this particular moment. Um, but I think it's bigger than that, um, and, and that's what I hope to suggest to you. I think what what we have here, and I used this uh, illustration with Jeff last night, I think what we have here, uh, and really with each of these benefits in, in many ways, is a kind of a peephole through which we look into the bigger, more magnificent purposes of God. You know, no... No verse of Scripture stands in isolation from the rest of Scripture. And, and, and actually, every verse of Scripture, while you want to take it seriously on its own merit, in its own context, um, every verse of, of Scripture becomes kind of like that wardrobe in, in you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Lucy walks through, through the wardrobe. She walks through the wardrobe into this world, into this wonderful, magical, mysterious, glorious world. Every verse of Scripture becomes something like that wardrobe where you step into the whole world of the Bible through a particular verse or passage. That, you can push back if you like, but um, that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. And I think that's what we have here. <clears throat> what, what is in view? What does God want me to understand? What did David have in mind? Uh, whether I look inside my own heart and see, see the brokenness that is there, the, 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 the sickness that is there, the, the disease that is there, um, whether I look into my own heart or... Or look at the world around me. Heaven, heaven knows that this is a badly, badly broken, damaged world. Um, or if I look at marriages, strained marriages, strained relationships, or, or kids. Um, kids who've walked away from the faith. Or friends. I have a very dear friend who's dying of cancer as we speak. Whose daughter is also dying of cancer as we speak. 
their home has been turned into a hospital for two terminal cancer patients. What do I do with this particular verse in light of all of this brokenness that I see in me and that I see around me? Well, let me me suggest a couple of things. Um, I said to you last night that, that I am convinced that David knew his Bible, the Bible that he had, as much of it as he had. Um, I believe he knew it pretty well. I, I believe he knew Leviticus 16 and knew that there was a way for our sins to be removed as far as the east is from the west. That it wasn't just a dismissing of charges, but it was actually dealing with the problem. He didn't know it in its fullness, as Jeff and I were talking last night. He saw it kind of through a mist, right? Um, it comes to clarity, obviously, in the person of Jesus, who, who is the true and final substitute. But he rejoiced in it. He rejoiced in as much as he saw. Um, similarly, I, I, I think David had some, some things uh, in his head as he... As he writes this psalm and as he as he says, who heals all your iniquities um, just you know, a couple of other illustrations of the fact that David knew his Bible. If you read Psalm 19, it becomes very clear that David had a healthy view of God as creator. Right. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Um, night to night reveals knowledge day to day pours forth speech you can't go any place in the universe without this voice of the, the creation crying out that God is really there that he really exists David had a very healthy view of the creation he had a very healthy view of, of redemption and that comes through in his psalms Psalm 74 77 78 81 102 106 104 107 124 whole bunch of psalms that reference the, the great epical event in Israel's history, which is Passover and Exodus, moving through the wilderness and in the direction of the promised land. So David's, David's mind and heart have been shaped by Scripture, and that's instructive for us too, right? That's instructive for us, uh, that our minds and hearts, which someone has described and it's true, our minds and hearts are like jello, you ever try to nail jello to a tree kind of thing? You can't do it. Or we become disformed very easily, and we need something to reform and reshape our minds and our hearts, or they just become deformed. David's mind and heart were formed and shaped by Scripture, and ours should be as well. Um, so when David writes this, um, this passage... This particular verse, who heals all your diseases, I'm pretty convinced that he had a couple of passages uh, in mind, at least, as he writes that. One from Exodus, Exodus chapter 23, and one from Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and then, and then later from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29. But let me read uh, this, this from Exodus chapter 23. Verses 23 to 26. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and water. 
And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land. And I will fulfill the number of your days. That's significant. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. Whether your wives or daughters or your donkeys or your oxen or you know whatever none shall miscarry so what is god what is god doing here well he's he's revealing himself as a god who has power over sickness and who has power to bless he he has power to protect his people from sickness exodus or uh, i'm sorry deuteronomy chapter 7 you get uh, similar uh, similar language Verses 12 to 15. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which Egypt knew, will you know. But he will lay them on all who hate you. So there again, later, Deuteronomy, uh, 40 years later, after the Exodus, And as the people are about to enter the promised land, God repeats this thing. And what is he doing? Well, he's he's revealing to his people through Moses that he that he is a God of blessing, that he can protect, that he can defend, that he can keep sickness and he can keep evil at bay. And then in Deuteronomy 29, just as the people are about to enter the land, um, a little bit more succinctly, but the same sort of imagery and language comes up. Deuteronomy 29.2 And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. He has led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. Again, it's it's a little more distilled, but it gets at the same thing, right? Shoes that didn't wear out. Why? Because God preserved, God protected, God blessed his people those 40 years in the wilderness. So, So God sets himself before his people as the faithful God, who has power to heal and power to bless, power to make whole. Okay? He has the ability to heal um, all your diseases. Now, David's not naive about this, right? And this is really important. David is not naive about this. He knows this history, and not only is he being molded and shaped, I'm convinced, by the word of God as he had it, with respect to God's ability to be the one who blesses, who protects and who heals, who, who keeps sickness at bay. 
he's also aware of the fact that death continued to prevail. Death was still a reality, right? That whole generation, the generation that left Egypt, died before entering the promised land. So it's it's kind of, there's a there's a dissonance there, isn't there? There's a kind of a yeah. How do these two things hang together, right? Because God, on the one hand, as we've said, is a God who blesses, who protects, uh, who who can keep sickness at bay, who heals, and yet at the same time, uh, death is very much a part of Israel's experience. That whole generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, died before entering. The promised land. And David himself, in his own experience, saw death. He lost a son, the son that was born to him uh, and to Bathsheba. So death was real, right? So, so what is God doing here? What is God saying when he says, heals all your diseases? Well, I want to suggest to you that he's making a promise. He's already represented himself, portrayed himself as a God of blessing a God who has power to keep illness at bay, uh, the God who did bless Israel in the ways that he did. But this is a promise of a final, complete, and entire healing. It's, it's, in some ways, it's not dissimilar to what he said about iniquities, right? Who forgives all your iniquities. Well, the iniquities that he's forgiven are not just past iniquities. They're not just the present iniquities, right? Here I am up here pouring my heart out to you guys, and you're all distracted with who's going to win, Iowa or Michigan. <laughs> right? Are they playing? They are, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Right? Right? Right. So, oh, yeah, but see, you see what I'm saying? There's a future dimension in David's experience to what he's written in Psalm 103. There are sins yet to be committed that will be forgiven because of God's provision. There are illnesses that God has dealt with in Israel's past, in David's life. But there are illnesses yet to be dealt with. The, the, the ultimate illness is death, right? So what, I, what, what is here, it seems to me, is a promise. The promise of entire, total, physical, mental, spiritual, relational, and even cosmic healing. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, who heals all your diseases. I've been in our Sunday school class at our church. I've been teaching through the gospel of Matthew. And a couple of weeks ago, we came to this passage. And I've read this passage before, and I'm sure you've read it, too. It's, it's really stunning. Um, Matthew 8, 14. Um, Jesus is early in his ministry. And he comes to Peter's house. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew cites Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 5. Um, sees it as being fulfilled in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, in the freeing of demon-possessed people, and in the healing of all manner of illness and sickness. He sees the fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53, in what Jesus is doing in Peter's house. Now let me let me read Isaiah 53. You know this passage. Um, I mean, this is one of those passages that you hear probably, you know, just about every year during Holy Week. Um, um, just wonderful, fabulous, unbelievable passage of Scripture. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Here's what I want to point out to you guys. We, we read Isaiah 53 and rightly, rightly, we see Jesus, prophetic way, portrayed as the sin-bearing substitute who carries our sins, who carries our iniquities, our transgressions to the cross. Right. I mean, one of the things that's so striking about Isaiah 53 is that it was the father's will to do this. It was the father's will to crush the son as a sin bearing sacrifice. I don't know if you all remember the interview that that Diane Sawyer did with Mel Gibson after Mel, Mel after the release of the film um, Passion of the Christ. Right. Diane Sawyer wanted to bait him. She was trying to bait him, right? Who, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Three times she asked him. And she wanted him to say the Jews killed Jesus. That, that's what she, she wanted him to say the Jews killed Jesus. But finally, Mel says, after she asked him three times, he says, Diane, don't you get it? We killed Jesus. Jesus. A friend of mine and I were having a conversation after that, and he pointed out to me that they were both wrong. It's the father who crushed the son. P- 
Peter refers to that in Acts chapter 2, his first sermon. These things were planned from before the foundation of the world. This specific thing is the Father's purpose for the Son, for you and me. We read Isaiah 53 and we see that because it's so clear. But Jesus didn't only, I don't minimize this, but Jesus didn't only bear our sins. Brothers, he also, and I don't understand how this works. He also carried your sorrows. He carried your griefs. He carried your brokenheartedness. He carried all the sadness in your souls. I've shared a little bit about my my story, my family story. Um, I grew up I grew up in a narcissistic household. Um, I said last night I'm as narcissistic as anybody, right? We're we're all narcissists. Um, you know what the definition of a narcissist is? Two people are in a conversation and one's been talking for 45 minutes. And finally says, well, that's enough, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? <laughs> right? But my dad really was. And I think he came to terms with this in some sense. But my dad really was a narcissist. And he was an alcoholic. And we were emotionally detached. I was 39 years old before I heard my father tell me he loved me. I carry those scars. I carry that sadness. But Isaiah is telling me, God through Isaiah is telling me that Jesus identifies with that sadness. He was a man of griefs and acquainted with sorrows. Whose? Mine. And in some sense, he took my sorrows and my sadness to the cross with him. That my sorrows and sadness might not any longer be a prison for me. In the same way that my sin is not a prison for me. Because the verdict, not guilty, not guilty, has been issued by the great judge. But he didn't just die for my sorrows. He died for my sicknesses. That's what, that's what Matthew is telling us. That somehow in this death that Jesus died, as he died for my sins, bearing my iniquities... He also bore my sorrows and he also is the means by which healing comes to me. He, by his death, has secured restoration, renovation. He, by his death, has borne all of it, all of the evidence of sin and the fall whether sin or sadness or sickness, Jesus has taken it all to the cross. And at the end of the day, he's taken to the cross the greatest of all of these enemies. Sin, sorrow, sickness. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has stared death in the face and he has vanquished death for you and for me. You know this this passage, I'm sure, John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, Lazarus has died. Jesus has been away. I'm convinced he stayed away because he knew what he was going to do when he got to the grave of Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. You can ask me about this, but... The first part of the text says, when Jesus learned that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days where he was. 
And I'm convinced that Jesus wanted to make sure that by the time he got to Lazarus' grave, he was certifiably dead. And he was. Martha says to him, ever the pragmatist, Martha says to him, he's been in the tomb four days. In the language of the old King James, he stinketh. Right? Certifiably dead. Decay was underway. When Jesus got to the grave of Lazarus, he exhibited two emotions. His friend was dead. The sisters of his friend were grieving. Extended family were grieving. Friends were grieving. They had probably hired professional grievers to come to do some grieving for them because they did that sort of thing. Jesus got to the grave. Shortest verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He wept because he saw what sin had done. That sin creates guilt. That sin creates sorrow and sadness. That sin creates sickness leading to death. He wept. The other emotion that Jesus expressed is mentioned two times in verses 33 and verse 38. Two times the text says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved and greatly troubled. Verse 33 and again verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. That that word, it's actually one word that's translated deeply moved. It's one word in the original language. is a word that is used to describe the emotions, if you will, of a war horse. A horse that is trained to take its rider into battle. It's the emotion that a war horse experiences when the war horse sees the enemy. The snorting the pawing of the ground, the tension in the muscles, the anxiety to be engaged with the enemy. You know, you see, snorting, right? Trembling to be on the attack. When Jesus saw what death had done, he became enraged like a war horse ready to attack an enemy. Guys, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus, the warrior, attacking the greatest enemy you have. The thing that sickness leads to, the thing that sorrow leads to, the thing that sin leads to, death. And Jesus made his assault. And he raised Lazarus from the dead as a confirmation that he is exactly who he claims to be. The resurrection and the life who by his death and subsequent resurrection overcomes sin and sadness and sickness and death. Amen. Right? That's what... that. I'm taking Psalm 103 and that little phrase, and I'm using it as a wardrobe, walking into this world of Narnia, and seeking to understand what the bigger picture is, whether David fully understood it or not, this is what God wants us to understand when he makes this promise. He heals all your diseases. 
And not only does he heal all your diseases, there's one last little bit to this. And I've got to, I just have to read it. And then we can, we've got some time for questions. Romans chapter 8. Actually, I've got to read two passages, but we have time. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Your translations may say to us, that's okay. John Murray has a great article in which he argues that that little preposition should be translated in because, my brothers, when Jesus returns and you are fully restored, you will be recreated to reflect the glory of God that you do not reflect in fullness now, but one day will. You will bear the weight of the glory of God. That's what you were designed to do, is reflect his glory. Be like a mirror, reflecting his glory to everything around you. The sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Mother Teresa said, when we taste the glories of heaven, it'll make the sufferings of this life seem like a night in a bad hotel. The glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you know what happens when you get glorified? When you're restored to the position that God created you to be in, as those reflecting his glory and acting sort of as his vice regents over the whole of the creation, after that happens, the creation gets restored. The curse is lifted. The hurricanes no longer slam into Fort Myers. The famine no longer leaves little children in Tanzania hungry. I go to, I go to Africa every year. It's, I'll, I'll tell you more about it. would love to tell you more about it. been going for 20 years. I've seen the effects firsthand of famine. I know what lack of rainfall does. You do too in your heads. Maybe some of you have seen it too, but I've seen it. No more of that stuff. It's all gone. The creation is put back together fully and you are recreated to dwell in a new heaven and a new earth to enjoy that new heaven and new earth forever and ever, forever. So last passage, Isaiah 35. It's one of those Old Testament passages that is a kind of a picture of what's coming. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. When I go to Tanzania, we fly across the Mediterranean and across North Africa. And we're usually there in the daytime. And I've done this for years. So I go to the back of the plane and I look out one side of the plane and I look out the other side of the plane. What do I see? Sand. Nothing but sand. For miles and miles and miles. A waterless waste. There's water underground, but there's nothing up on top. 
the desert shall rejoice and explode in color like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. It will rejoice with joy and singing. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the highway of holiness. And nothing unclean will pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And this is really good news. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. That's good news to me. No lion shall be there. No ravenous beast. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Why? Because Jesus, the lover of your souls, where your sin, your sorrow, your sadness, your brokenness, your, your sickness, and even death, he bore it all on the cross and was raised to life, newness of life for you. Brothers, a great day is coming. I, I hope it comes now. <laughs> right now. I don't care about Michigan and Iowa. I want Jesus to come back. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this promise that you have forgiven all of our iniquities and you will heal all our diseases, all of our diseases, soul diseases, relational diseases, physical diseases, mental diseases, whatever it is, Lord Jesus, you've died to purchase a new life and a new kind of life for everyone in this room. Oh, help us to embrace this. Help us to rest in this hope. We ask, Lord, in your name. Amen. Okay. I've been talking for a long time. Comments? Questions? Thoughts? Okay. Joseph? One of the uh, uh, comments you have made, um, it reminded me of Philippians 1.21, where it says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, and something that I'm trying to figure out with that in my own personal life is how do I, what is in Christ? Hmm. Remaining in Christ. And, and then, I know we have to have quote unquote uh, fellowship with the world or, or, or not that, right? Um, but when I was thinking of, I don't know where that gentleman is at today, but he had made a comment last night when it begins monotonous, it stirred something to me this morning of, in my devotion time of asking, okay, well, 
how do I remain in Christ when I'm starting to follow the steps? And I know I made the comment last night, but I don't know. I just figured I would ask you. I was going to ask you that privately, but... What was the comment that the you referred to another gentleman who made a comment? I, I, I remember that using Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in oh, the Lord. trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Lean on my yeah. understanding. But then as I debated it uh, in my devotion time this morning, it reminded me, okay, well, what is in Christ? I guess that's my question. Yeah. What What is in Christ? Abiding in Christ. What is that? Yes. With, by which I guess you're asking how do we maintain that yes, how yes. do we how do we maintain that yes. yeah that's a great question um, I mean the first thing I would say honestly Joseph um, is that 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 language of being in Christ as I mentioned last night um, it has it does have its parallel imagery in John 15, the vine and the branches, sure. right? Abiding, Jesus encourages, admonishes his disciples to abide in him because apart from him we can do nothing. Sure. So he's the vine, we are the branches, he's the source of life. Our abiding in him ensures that that life flows to us, right? Paul's language of, of being in Christ um, um is analogous to that, right? That they, and they're 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 similar to each other. They're okay. it's, they're just different ways of saying the same thing. Okay. okay. Here's the thing. The first thing I would say is that 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 language of being in Christ extends from before the foundation of the world to beyond the end of history. Okay. okay. It's and again it's. It's, it's, there's a certain mystery in it, right? But Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Christ himself is the source of every spiritual blessing. Everything I'll ever need is to be found in Jesus. Okay. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Joseph, even when you weren't in Christ, you were in Christ. Okay. Right? Because in the mystery of God's Providence, his kind, redeeming providence. This is, this is I'm, these things are debatable, and I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm just trying to help you understand what I think the scriptures teach, right? God, in his merciful, redeeming providence, fixed his gaze on you before the foundation of the world and inserted you into Christ before the foundation of the world. Like, like Noah and his family in the ark, stuck in the ark with all those stinking animals, but safe because God put him in there and shut the door, right? Before the foundation of the world, God's fixed his gaze upon you and determined to put you into Christ so that when Christ came into the world, there is a sense in which 
he brought you with him. Right? Which is what the Romans 6 thing is about that that, uh, Tom mentioned last night. When Christ died, you died because you were in Christ. When Christ was raised to newness of life, you were raised to newness of life because you were in Christ. When Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and is seated in glory, you ascended to the right hand of the Father because you are in Christ. Right? So the, 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 the first thing I would say is our, our attention in the first place has to be focused on Jesus and who he is and what he has done. That's the, that's the basis upon which I live my Christian life. I have to. Because if, if I turn my attention away from Jesus and get too fixated on myself, I know where that's going. That does not end well, right? That's why I was reminded that it was Robert Murray McShane, who um, Carl reminded me this morning, it was Robert Murray McShane who made the great statement, for every look I take at myself, I take ten looks at Christ. Right? Having said that, there are, there are these, these, I'll call them medicines, medicines for the soul, Medicines for my relationship with Jesus. Medicines that he has given me. And if I take my medicine, I abide. I remain in Christ. Right? So what's the medicine? The scriptures. The word of God. Prayer. The sacraments of the church. You know, communion. The fellowship of believers. I mean, again, I've been doing this for 45 years. People come to me, and I, and, and I mean, it's just, it's just happened. It just happens, guys. People come to me, and they say, you know, my spiritual life is really flat. And without being, you know, mean-spirited or wagging my finger at them, I'll just say, well, you know, I haven't seen you in church in six months. How's your golf game? <laughs> you know, how's the duck blind? How's fishing? Right? I mean, how's the lake house? Guys, these these things that we do, we don't do these things to check a box. We don't do these things because we think if we do them, Jesus loves us more. He cannot love you more than he already does and has from before the foundation of the world. We don't do these things to check the box. We do these things because they're medicine for our souls. They keep us healthy. They keep us in communion with Jesus, right? One of the, we call these things the means of grace. And one of the means of grace is a father's discipline of his children. And I've just, I've found it in my own life. So when somebody comes to me and says, you know, my, my spiritual life is dry and just kind of dead. And so I start asking questions about you know, have you been appropriate? Have been taking your medicine? And they say, well, no, I haven't been taking my medicine. Well, no wonder you feel sick. Because you haven't taken your medicine. And that's the father's discipline. That's the father seeking to wake you up and say, hey, dude, get back in the game. Take the medicine. Right? I don't know if that's helpful. But no, it's, it's, it's very helpful, especially very um, accurate in my life. Like I've, I've lived a life of just emotionalness and a life of sin, and when I was listening to you, all I kept thinking of and hearing is that this is just a love letter. It's just, you know, it's just God's 
what a love story between us and our creator. And um, it, I don't know, it, it, it moves me. Like there's no charismatic music, there's no nothing. It's just God's word. It's just yeah. moving me in my heart saying, you really love me, God. Like this is crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's crazy. This is like, crazy. Yeah, I'm, you know, you clean me up, you restore me, you, and you love me. So it's very moving. And I think I was sharing last night with some of the guys, like, and I don't have to do nothing. Except take your medicine. <laughs> take your medicine. That's, that's, yeah. that's it. I mean, you can use athletic imageries, too, yeah. which the Bible does, right? I mean, a good athlete just has to, you have to stay with the regimen. Or stuff starts falling apart. I mean, it's just, you know, you don't do it. You don't, you don't, you are an athlete. You don't do it to become an athlete. You know, it's just the question of health. Are you going to maintain physical, mental, emotional health as an athlete? And to do that, you got to do the regimen, right? So, yeah. David, you, you had your hand up back there. No, I was going to say, when Joseph asked the question, you know, what does it mean to remain? How do you Sometimes do that? It's hard. It's really see the one through the eyes of the other. To see my guilt through the eyes of God's imputation of Christ's righteousness upon me. Yes. <laughs> but I think these things that we've been saying are 
are helpful when we're in the midst of a struggle like that to you know to continue to seek to abide to continue to take the medicine um, I just I mean I say that not just as a pastor but I think we all can say that from personal experience um, or I, I don't say it from some sort of vague conceptual perspective but but really from an experiential perspective um, um, and I, I'll, I'll just say, I, last the last year, I'm sure for you guys, for us, as a church, for a number of reasons, has been extraordinarily difficult. Um, our senior pastor's wife was diagnosed with um, stage four colorectal cancer um, the end of August um, of last year. Um, went through surgeries. Has been through chemotherapy regimens and actually right now uh, there is no evidence of disease it's rather remarkable but but then there's all the the stuff that's gone on as a result through COVID as a result of COVID election related stuff I live in the south um, race stuff sadly is still I mean it's a big deal everywhere as you all know but there's some unique contours to it in Memphis Tennessee um, you know, but all of that stuff has converged. It's been a very, very hard year for us as a pastoral staff. And I think the reason Psalm 103 became so precious to me was because in the midst of that, I'm trying to figure out, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff is going on. I'm trying to figure out where God is in the midst of this. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not anybody's hero with respect to these things. I just use that to illustrate that, that you know, where do you go in the midst of chaos? Where, where do you find comfort in the midst of chaos? Well, you, you find it in Jesus. How do you get to Jesus? I think you get to Jesus through the means that he has appointed uh, and by which he, in fact, if I had the larger catechism here, I'd, I'd read you a couple of questions that to me are just stunning in which, in fact, we'll, we'll dig up a larger catechism before the afternoon session and I'll, I'll read these two questions uh, to you. I don't have it on my phone. I'm a bad Presbyterian, uh, bad pastor, bad Presbyterian pastor. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in that situation, it's Rob, right? Yeah. yeah. Or, or just the craziness of the last couple of years. Um, Jesus has given us a way to get to him. He's given us these medicines, these means of grace. Um, it's not, and it's not, it's not like a, I don't know. It's, not always, it's just not always easy to get there. Right. It just isn't. But where else are you going to go? I, I mean, I had this in my notes, I think, for last night or this morning. I, so often I think of Peter in John chapter 6, when the end of John chapter 6, and everybody's leaving Jesus. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, what about you? What are you going to do? And he says, where, where is there to go? You have, you, this, may not be the, this may not be the option I was looking for, <laughs> but the rest of them are absolutely no good. Where is there to go? You have words of eternal life. You guys are so patient. Yeah. You're men- you mentioned you're memorizing Psalm 57. You talk about meditation. You talk about being in the Word. Sometimes there's an aversion. Some people, I mean, those are some classical disciplines. Yes, yes. Um, and yet there's some aversion to 
naming those as, as being legal or fake. How do you get around that with, with folks? And that, that, because those are the, that's what's going to draw us to Christ, and yet they can be used legalistically by people. How do you go about it? That, that, that's the life for us. Yeah, that's a great question. How do these, how do these disciplines, or what I've called means of grace, how do we, how do we encourage people to employ those, engage those, uh, without turning them into law, as though law is somehow going to help you, because law doesn't. I think that's what I think that's what Paul's driving at in Romans chapter seven. Um, I mean, it's. Not, not to go off, but but I think when when Paul thinks about how the law functioned in his own life and, and acknowledges that it was through the law that he began to understand coveting, right? The law crushes, right? And he gets to the end of that. It, the law crushes when the law becomes a means to an end for which it was not appointed. Paul gets to the end of that passage and, and he says, who then will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Jesus is the deliverer, but Jesus is the physician. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the restorer. It's not law, but he's given us these medicines. As I've said to Joseph, these are medicines for my soul. They're not laws that constrains God to like me better than he already does, right? I remember preached a sermon one time in which, I, in which I said, before you were a Christian, the law is a judge who condemns you. Once you become a Christian, the law is actually a friend who can guide you. And it's, you know, we can very often get that backwards. And that's that's I think when we get into trouble. So I, I just I think it's you know how do we how do we think about it? how do we teach about it how do we preach about these things how do we illustrate these things I think is is helpful. And then you know we got to recognize I mean there's just so much of this we've got to recognize that there are just a lot of our brothers and sisters who have been torched by legalistic Christianity torched and. And they just need to know. They just need to know, and, and I think can't hear enough of of the loving kindness of a tender father whose heart breaks over the brokenness of his children. I, mean, I, I think so, so. You know that kind of stuff. I, I would say. All right, it's ten thirty. You guys are so patient. Um, again, I'm here, happy to chat. Um, if you want to pursue anything further. But thanks for your questions, comments. Let me pray and we'll break. Lord, um, as Joseph said, to think, uh, to think that you, the God of heaven and earth, infinite, eternal, unchanging in your being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, eternally, mutually delighted, within yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just craziness to think that you would love us. And yet your Son, Father, the Lord Jesus, has said that you love us with the very same love with which you love him. That same always and forever undying love. 
Um, and I pray that you'd grant to us, um, your sons, the grace that we need to hear that, to take it in, truly to believe it, truly to rest in it. Um, be with us uh, through the rest of this day. Grant us a good time as we play and fellowship and have lunch. Um, thank you that you're a part of all of these things. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.